I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest of vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? These words spoken by the prophet Isaiah are both a love song and a lament rolled into one. They express the love of God for his people and the shock of this love being rejected through human sin. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. We should recognize in these verses the story of Israel, that chosen vine plucked from bondage in Egypt and graciously planted in the promised land. We should also recognize our own story, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In today's parable, Jesus picks up this familiar image and uses it to teach us the surprising truth about who he is and how we participate in his life. So first, what does this parable teach us about who he is? Jesus said to his disciples, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. On the one hand, this would have been a very familiar and easily recognizable image, drawing on passages like the one we just heard from Isaiah. It's the story of creation and redemption, told as the story of a family farming business. God plants the vineyard in order for the vines to produce fruit. He establishes his people in order for them to live righteous lives. But the unexpected twist is that instead of God's people as a whole being the vine, Jesus is the true vine. It's even emphatic in the Greek, the vine, the true. Jesus claims for himself the vocation of Israel, God's firstborn son. He is the son and heir of the family business, the one through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. This is quite a claim to make for oneself. I'm reminded of what C.S. Lewis said to those who would claim that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on level with the man who says he's a poached egg. Think about what he's saying. He's saying that the whole story of Israel comes to a head in him. And whereas Israel proved faith, unfaithful, he, as Israel's embodiment, proves faithful. Like the vine to the branches, Jesus is the source of life for God's people. For, as he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. This claim would be madness unless Jesus is who he says he is. Not only does the parable make a remarkable claim about who Jesus is, it also has implications for God's people. At first, it looks like we're in precisely the same situation as ancient Israel, expected to bear fruit, but unable to do so. 
After all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But remember, in the parable, we are not the vine. Jesus is the vine. And this is the secret to bearing fruit, abiding in the true vine, staying connected to the true source of life. So the big question is, how do we do this? How do we participate in the life of Christ? First and most importantly, we abide in Jesus. We place our whole lives in his hands. Although he is the source of life, we must choose to remain connected to him in order to participate in the life which he alone can give. The posture of the Christian life is one of utter dependence on Jesus and obedience to Jesus. And this is why a few verses later, Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. We remain connected to Jesus by living in obedience to his word. And unlike the vain attempt to bear fruit through our own effort, the result of abiding in the vine is that we will quite naturally bear fruit. Like a healthy vine, this is not a one-time event. It is an ongoing process involving ever more growth. Now, I am not a gardener myself. I do not have a green thumb. In fact, if I ever give you gardening advice, I would suggest you do the opposite. But as I've read and as I've been told, and as every gardener I suspect knows, the kind of growth that's described here requires pruning, requires constant care. Every branch that bears fruit, God prunes. Pruning is a temporary cutting back for the sake of a healthier plant and a greater harvest. And the disciples, it's important to realize, have already gone through some of this pruning. That's why Jesus says, you have already been cleansed or pruned by my word. They have had to cut off some of their own goals and ambitions in order to answer the call of Jesus. And there will undoubtedly be more situations in which they will require more pruning for them as well as for us. This process can be painful, isolating those aspects of our lives that get in the way of growth, that keep us from, from fulfilling our vocation and rooting them out. But it is ultimately for our own good, for our flourishing in God's vineyard. And it can also surprisingly be a means of intimacy with God. As one writer put it, the vine dresser is never closer to the vine taking more thought over its long-term health and productivity than when he has the knife in his hand. In both of these ways, through our active obedience to his word and our passive submission to his pruning, we are living into our life in Christ. And God, the master gardener, is cultivating us. Augustine said it beautifully, his cultivating consists in getting rid of all the seeds of wickedness from our hearts in opening our heart to the plow, as it were, of his word, in sowing in us the seeds of his commandments, and in waiting for the fruits of godliness. The interesting thing about this whole process is that it really is a remarkable transformation, but one that happens by very little steps. By abiding in Jesus and allowing God to cultivate our hearts and our lives, we are gradually growing from dead branches into fruitful vines, 
from the likeness of Adam into the likeness of Christ. I think this is why Jesus can make that astounding promise toward the end of the passage. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Abiding in Christ transforms us into his likeness, and not just outwardly in our actions, but also inwardly in our thoughts and desires. We are learning to love what God loves. Be transformed, therefore, by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are the vine, we are the branches. Keep us firmly fixed to you, the only source of life, and transform us into your likeness, that we may grow to love what you love, and then grant us our heart's desire according to your promise.